We'll hear argument now on number 95591, the United States versus International Business Machines Corporation. Uh, Mr. Muneer. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue in this case is whether Section 4371 of the Internal Revenue Code runs afoul of the Export Clause of the Constitution. Section 4371 imposes a generally applicable tax not limited to exports on premiums paid by foreign insurers for risks that occur wholly or partly within the United States. It eliminates a competitive advantage that foreign insurers would otherwise enjoy by virtue of their exemption from the federal income tax. The Federal Circuit ruled that the Export Clause prohibits the application of that tax to insurance associated with exports. It concluded that this Court's decision in Thames and Mercy versus United States compelled that result. We submit that this Court's ruling in Thames and Mercy is no longer viable. That decision was a departure from precedent when it was decided 80 years ago, and it rested on a Commerce Clause rationale that this Court has since repudiated. But perhaps most important, Thames cannot be reconciled with this Court's modern tax decisions, which have worked a basic change in the law. Those decisions, Michelin Tire and Washington Stevedoring, have, in the words of the Court, abandoned the past practice of examining when goods lose their character as imports or exports, and has refocused the inquiry on the nature of the tax at issue. Using that approach, the Court has concluded that the Import-Export Clause does not prohibit the application of generally applicable taxes, but rather... Well, Mr. Muneer, we're dealing here with the Export Clause, not the Import-Export Clause. Isn't that right? That is correct, Your Honor. And it certainly is possible that the Export Clause has different purposes than the Import-Export Clause. That is possible, but we do not think it is borne out by either the language or the content of the clause itself. And if you do concede that um, if we do not overrule the Thames case, that uh, you lose. That is correct. We have made that concession in the briefs. And it obviously would require ultimately overruling more than just uh, Thames and Mercy. There are some other cases that uh, are of the same genre. But relatively few, Your Honor. Uh, in fact, there were uh, four cases that were decided before Thames well, and Mercy. Why should we do that at all? Why not leave them in place? What harm does it do? The harm that it does is it, it results in a, a lack of coherence in this Court's overall approach to the problem in this area. Well, occasionally one, one has that. We certainly have the precedents out there, and I just, you're going to have to persuade me that there is some very important reason for overturning these long-standing precedents. And this is a separate provision, too. It's not as if it's based on the Commerce Clause. It's based on a separate prohibition against taxes on imports, on exports, which is, the language is different even than the Export-Import Clause. Your Honor, I'd like to answer both of the questions, both of the points that you made there. First, this Court has consistently interpreted the Export Clause and the Import-Export Clause as imposing a parallel limitation on the federal and state governments with respect to exports. If there's one element of consistency that has run through this Court's cases in the past 175 years, it is that those two clauses should be interpreted interpret consistently. And secondly, there's the question of the language difference. Respondent asserts that the, the export clause should be read as a more extensive prohibition because it uses the term tax or duty rather than the term impost or duty. But the terms tax and impost are synonymous, and the operative phrase in this context is functionally identical. Why, are they why, why do the framers use different language then? The framers frequently use synonymous terms to express the same idea. For, for example, the, the framers stated that, uh, that Congress would have the power to raise and support armies, but also to provi provide and maintain a navy. 
It said that uh, Congress would have the power to establish post offices, but to constitute tribunals. Uh, the very nature of a synonym is frequently it can be used interchangeably with no change in meaning. Well, I don't think that carries you very To provide and maintain a navy, you're providing ships, whereas to raise and support armies, you're, you're conscripting troops. But this, the, the overall content of, the, of those phrases, they convey the same general meaning. And that's the point that Chief Justice Marshall made in 1827 in the case of Brown v. Maryland. As he stated, there is some diversity in language, but the act that is prohibited is the same. And that provision, that statement, has been followed by this court, as I say, in numerous cases. Even though the case itself hasn't been followed. The case itself has been followed in significant part. It's true that the aspect of the case originally, uh, relating to the original package doctrine has not been followed. Uh, at least it has, not, it, has been, it has not been seen as a restriction. But one of the ironies of this case is that what the respondent's position would do is actually reintroduce the very notion of the original package doctrine, or at least the converse of it in the, court, in the, the sense of taxes on exports. Are, are you concerned that the original package doctrine has to be introduced or something like it if we attempt some halfway solution where we rule in your favor, saying there cannot be a tax on the export, but that if there is an indirect tax, then the discrimination rule applies. Yes, that is, that is a problem, that we believe that the, one of the basic points of this court's decision in Michelin Tire and Washington Stevedoring was to abandon that type of inquiry. This Mr. Inquiry, Minister, you mentioned Washington Stevedoring, which involved um, the cost of loading. Um, yes, the tax was applied to and, the loading and the And I thought ships. that the whole idea of that is that that was a discrete item, that you could separate the stevedoring, the loading of the vessel, from the goods. And I was struck by your brief that you don't make any lesser argument. You don't say this tax is okay because it's on the insurance and not on the goods. You seem to concede that the tax should be treated as though it were on the goods. Well, we believe that that's a separate problem with Thames and Mercy. It's another problem that was introduced by that case. But you've conceded, conceded that. Conceded. You've conceded but that. Is, so that problem's that, over, the, over the falls, right? We don't have the, to worry about that. The bigger problem is the one that we're concerned with, and that was the, the application. Yes. Excuse me. It seems to me that you could. Uh, in this case, say this is not a tax on the goods themselves and then invoke your anti-discrimination principle, leaving a tax on the good themselves for another day. That's right. Holding case, etc. And the problem, the reason why we chose not to do that is because it is, requires us to fall back onto uh, an analysis similar to the original package doctrine. What is an export and what is not an export? But it's so hard in, in this case to do that. Can't we reserve the difficult question for a later case? Well, of course you could do that, but it seems to, to me that the issue ought to be addressed now, that this is a problem that has continued to plague this area, area over How 175 years. How does your theory not, not require us to figure out what are imports and, and what aren't imports, even to, to decide whether a, a tax is discriminatorily placed on imports? You, you have to decide the same question. Let's assume you have a tax that is only placed upon, uh, upon insurance of, uh, of, of exports. 
wouldn't you still have to decide whether that's, uh, in effect, a tax upon exports? Then you might well have to, to face that question. But the of test course, that we I, I don't see how that question is, is eliminated by, uh, by adopting the theory that, that you're pressing upon us. The test that we propose will eliminate that inquiry in most every case, because the initial question will be, is this tax discriminatory? And that's a question that can usually you be answered you to say discriminatory easy. against what? And to determine the what, you've got to decide whether the, the subject of the tax should be treated as an export. I don't see how you can get away from it. Well, on the other hand, Your Honor, if a tax applies across the board to all types of transactions, it is not discriminatory. So you do not need to get into the question of what is an export and what isn't. So as long as the, the South, if the South, in other words, uh, exports 100% of its indigo crop, now let's say only 99.99%, and Congress were to pass a tax saying, all shipments of indigo uh, pay a 10% tax. In your view, that's non-discriminatory, and therefore, at the time of this Constitution was enacted, uh, the court should have upheld it. I think that the question of whether any particular tax is going to be discriminatory may, re may require a further analysis. One what thing about the case I put? At the moment that that tax is imposed, perhaps it is a tax on uh, exports. But you must remember that markets constantly change. The, the question I think was being asked is, isn't, don't you have to figure out whether the tax is on an export or not, even under your analysis? You do, but you can. The, the analysis we propose simplifies this area in the same way that it has simplified the area in the import-export clause cases by focusing on the nature of the tax. If the tax is a general tax, if it applies across the board to all of the products, then it would not fall within the, the purview of the export clause. Mr. Menino, no, would, you, would you explain to me why you, you don't make the argument, the simple argument that what Congress had in mind was evening out the situation for domestic insurers, because this would apply to the um, suppose there were a foreign company that was insuring entirely domestic transport, the tax would apply, right? Yes. And yet th that seems such a simple argument that you, did, that you avoid, and I'm not clear on why you're doing that. We do not mean to avoid that argument. That's part of our argument of why this is a tax of general application. In this particular context, in fact, the tax appears to be more of an import tax than an export tax. Remember, this is a tax that is being imposed on the basis of foreign insurers selling insurance in this country on the basis uh, to protect against risks that occur wholly or partly in the United States. But our argument is addressed to the broader problem here, and that's why we think that you need to reconsider Thames and Mercy. The, the consider, our concerns here are not limited to just this case, but rather to adding coherence to the overall body of law here. Mr. Minier, I, I'm, I'm just skeptical that the, that the, that the, the canny Southerners who got this uh, provision included in the, uh, in the Constitution were resigned to the notion that if a tax were placed upon indigo, uh, it would be up to the courts as to whether that was a discriminatory tax, uh, you, you know, upon shipments of indigo. It would depend on what percentage was being exported, and, and, and I, that, that's your... That's your analysis, right, that, that if, in fact, almost all indigo was being uh, exported, that would be a discriminatory tax. It could be. I'm not saying that it would be. I, I, if, if, Your Honor, I'm I skeptical that, that that's all the protection the Southerners thought they got when they got the export clause included in the Constitution. Well, if, if we're looking to what the framers were concerned about, I think that the, the convention debates indicate they were concerned about export taxes. At that period, they were, con they were familiar with the types of taxes that were commonly imposed on trade. And during that era, it was very common to impose a tax on exports. In fact, the convention debates make specific 
specific reference to the tax that France imposed on her wines and brandies that were exported and the tax that England imposed on its woolen products as well. That is what they saw as the danger, a tax that would be imposed upon exports that would fall disproportionately on the southern states, which had developed an export economy. Well, it isn't just disproportionality, isn't it? Weren't they concerned with the fact that if there was a tax on the exports, they would go broke one way or the other. Either they wouldn't be able to make any money on their exports or uh, because the, the government would take their profit or they couldn't conversely sell on the world market because the price would be too high. And it wouldn't have been any consolation to them whatsoever to find uh, that in fact they were not being discriminated against within sort of the general field of taxation in the United States. Uh, they, they, if they couldn't do business, they couldn't do business. And as, as, a, as a region that was a, basically a net exporter of raw materials, it was, the, it was the ultimate economic effect that they were worried about, not discrimination. Isn't that fair to say? Well, I think that they, were, they realized that their ultimate protection from taxation in the southern states as well as in the north lie in the, the establishment of a Congress composed of two houses that would provide the representation that would give weight to their concerns. Well, if that's all they were concerned about, then they didn't need the clause in the first place. I mean, they wanted that clause. They were not taking this on faith. And the reason they wanted that clause ultimately uh, turned on the economic effect of the tax. And I suppose the economic effect of the tax is going to be exactly the same or was expected to be exactly the same, whether you or I called it discriminatory or not. And, I mean, isn't that, a, isn't that a fair objection? I think that their objection was actually more pointed. It was to the notion of the export tax, the export tax that they were familiar with that they saw posing a serious threat to their economies as they existed. Well, you're, well then, then, then you're being inconsistent in your analysis. Then you shouldn't say that if 99% of indigo is exported, uh, a tax generally on the on the uh, on the uh, on the sale of, of indigo would be a discriminatory tax. My my view on that, which is, are they, are, if they're concerned only with uh, with taxes on exports, then that hypothetical should not be a discriminatory uh, should not come within the export clause. I, I, I would like to clarify my answer on that, and that is that the tax on an object that is 100 percent exported might very well be a discriminatory tax if it's a pretext for imposing a tax on exports. But there are other types of taxes that would in fact fall exclusively on an exported product, yet we would hesitate to call them an export tax. And let me give you the example of a medicine, for instance, that is not approved for use in the United States, but is approved for use elsewhere. And as a result, it's pro it is, tends to be exported. Congress could impose a tax on that, I believe, without violating the export clause, to cover the specific costs that the government incurs in going through the FDA approval process. And that's why I say you need to look to the actual purpose of the tax that's being rendered in any particular case. What leads you to that conclusion, that the, the government can le levy a tax on the medicine being exported if it has gone to some expense to, to test it in this country? By the reason for that is because even now the Congress can levy that type of tax if it's a tax on the manufacturer rather than at some later point. Well, but you, you say it can le levy a tax on the medicine itself being exported? It can levy a tax on the medicine, not on the medicine. What I'm saying, my, my point here, Your Honor, is that you have to focus on the specific tax that's at issue. Well, of course, it, the, the, the constitutional language says no tax or duty. Now, presumably, that, that includes more than just a tax. Yes, I, well, I think that it, can, it embraces the same types of 
imposts and duties as are included within the import-export clause. Our view is that there is no difference in meaning in the tax and duty in the export clause and the impost and duty in the, in the import-export clause. But, but it seems to me your answer to the Chief Justice betrays what uh, is the cons- uh, betrays your argument and what's of concern to the court. You say, well, that's a tax on manufacturing. We're right back into asking the difference between a tax on an export and a tax on manufacturing. Your discrimination rationale does not save us that inquiry. It, it eliminates the inquiry in most cases, is my point here. In virtually all cases, it will eliminate that inquiry. We look to whether the, excuse me, Your Honor, uh, you look to whether the tax is, in fact, non-discriminatory. And if the tax is non-discriminatory, then it will not run afoul of those concerns that are indicated by the export clause. And, and non-discriminatory means? It's a tax of general application. It's applied to goods across the board. Do we have to then look at the percentage of the thing? It's exported as opposed to the percentage that isn't? No, I think that in the, in the usual case, you'll be able, as in this case, simply to look to the character of the tax. So the, the character price, of the tax as a is always phrased, you know, all non-discriminatory, rich and poor can sleep under the bridges of Paris, non-discriminatory, all indigo is, is taxed, even though it happens to be the case that 99.999% is exported. I mean, is that... How to avoid looking at the percentages? I'd My point to you on the indigo example is we would not say that, you're pre- that a party is precluded from challenging even a non-discriminatory, a text that on its face is non-discriminatory. Right, let, let me ask you, on a, the different, basis I ask you a different question because yes. this is what is actually that I can't. If, it seems to me, if, if, and it's a very big if, a tax on premiums paid to foreign insurers who have no U.S. offices for casualty insurance is, in fact, a tax on the item that is insured, then we are to look to this as a tax on the item insured. Then I would guess it is relevant as to how many, what the percent of items is that buys this kind of insurance that is exported, and I would imagine it's very, very high. And therefore, we're back to the 99.9% indigo. What's wrong with the reasoning I just said? And I said it's a very big if, because it sounds to me as if your brief has assumed the if. And if we're supposed to go into the if or not go into the if, how do we go into it, given the arguments in front of us and our lack of knowledge of the empirical facts that underlie them? My view on how you approach the question is as follows. You look at the tax and how the tax is phrased. The tax in this case is phrased to cover all casualty insurance that's issued by a foreign insurer that involves a risk partly or wholly no, in the United I take States. It foreign insurer who has no U.S. office. Is that right? Yes, it applies to an insurer that has no U.S. office. So that must not be very normal that an American buys insurance casualty from an insurer who has no U.S. office but does not intend to ship the goods so insured abroad. I mean, I don't know. This tax applies not simply to export insurance, but across the board to all types of casualty insurance. But again, to get back to to the the problem that that you're... postulating here. The approach is to look at the tax and determine whether or not it discriminates against exports. If it does not discriminate against exports, then the tax is valid. I would not rule out the possibility that a party could say that even though the tax on its face 
is non-discriminatory and therefore valid, but in fact it has a pretext or a different motive that requires a further analysis. Mr. Menea, do we that's have a any, very small number of cases. Do we have any idea whether there is any business of insuring domestic uh, transport by uh, foreign insurance companies that have no office in the U.S.? I believe that there is. The total amount of tax revenue that is collected each year from Section 4371 is about $100 million. And we don't know what portion of that tax relates to export insurance and what, which portion relates to flood insurance, fire insurance, or any other type of casualty insurance that might be imposed under this tax. Well, I suppose the tax covers reinsurance so that uh, things like uh, insurance carried by Lloyd's would be covered by this tax? Yes, it does cover reinsurance at a different rate. Uh, it does provide for a one cent rather than a four cent. But that could explain the large uh, revenues. That, that might explain it. That's true. We simply uh, don't know the answer to that. Let me ask you this. I thought that under cases like the Stevedoring case, uh, we wouldn't say that a tax is non-discriminatory unless it bears a reasonable relationship uh, with the privilege of doing business within the taxing jurisdiction. I'm not certain that uh, a tax imposed on insurance uh, on goods traveling uh, overseas bears a reasonable relationship to the United States under that test. Well, I believe that the tax here is designed to eliminate the competitive advantage that foreign insurers enjoy in this market by their exemption from the federal income tax. And this court has recognized that that type of tax is permissible. It's very similar to a tariff tax for, as I say, a service that's being provided in this country. I think overall, it's that viewed from the framers' perspective, the Thames decision would be viewed as an anomaly. And Mr. Minear, uh, uh, to come back to the framers' perspective, I note in your reply brief, even Justice Story's uh, description of, of, the, of the word uh, impost. I'm coming back to the difference between the, in, in the phrasing of the two clauses. Stories uh, observes that, that it, it is sometimes used in the large sense of taxes and sometimes in the more restrained sense of a duty on imported goods and merchandise. That's what he says yes. in 1833. Uh, Merriam-Webster's uh, 1828 dictionary says the same thing, that it could be used, well, I'll read it, any tax or tribute imposed by authority, particularly a duty or tax laid by government on goods imported. Uh, imposts are also called customs. I, I think, uh, given the, the difference in the language, why wouldn't it be normal to give, uh, that is, between taxes in one clause and imports and exports in the other, um, uh, 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 duties in, in the other, um, wouldn't it be normal for us to give it more, its more limited meaning here? It can bear a more limited meaning. No, I don't believe that it is appropriate. Uh, first of all, because it has a, a more general meaning. Second, because even just a story... Oh, of course it has a more general. Yes, but, just but as between giving it the more general or giving it the, the narrower, giving it the narrower meaning uh, uh, makes it different. But you've already given it a broader meaning than that in Justice Marshall's, Chief Justice Marshall's first opinion, where he felt that impost reached a licensing fee, which would never have been viewed as an impost in the normal limited meaning of that term. I think these terms have really become, in a sense, terms of art that are tied to the objectives that the framers sought to, to, uh, to convey through the, through the Constitution. I would also point out that this court has used the term tax and impost interchangeably. Uh, in a 1906 decision called New Jersey v. Anderson, the co this court described a tax as an impost for the support of the government. 
that appears at 203 U.S. at 492. So I don't think the word search will really provide us the answer here. Instead, I think we have to take a look at the broader perspective and make sure that the export clause jurisprudence is consistent with the import export clause jurisprudence. Well, why should we do that when there are two different clauses and different language? Because that is the one source of consistency in this area of law in the past 170 years. And even in Washington stevedores, this court cited export clause cases, the Spalding case in particular, as a case that it viewed as taking the wrong approach in this area of law. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Muneer. Uh, Mr. Abbott, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. The holding of Michelin and Washington Stevedoring, which the government is relying on so heavily in this case, is that impost did not mean tax. That the key holding in Michelin was that impost referred to a subcategory of taxes, those taxes which are of a customs nature. Those are the cases the government's relying upon, and now they're turning the rationale of that case inside out. Impost and tax, in some instances, are used synonymously, but rarely, and certainly the jurisprudence under these clauses has been absolutely to the contrary. Uh, even Chief Absolutely. I mean, you have John Marshall, uh, uh, for starters, uh, saying that the two clauses mean the same thing. Uh, not on this point, Justice Scalia. And I think this is very important. I think the government has, has put together, in a way that ends up being misleading, two different things that John Marshall said, Chief Justice Marshall. In the Latin, where he said the clauses are similar, he was addressing the issue of whether a tax imposed on an occupation is a tax on an import. And it was in that context that he drew an analogy to the Export Clause and, and said both clauses are similar in that they use similar languages to what's prohibited, what act is prohibited, the laying on of a tax. That's where he said the clauses were similar. Separately, eight pages earlier, he addressed the difference between tax and impost. Justice Thompson, you may remember, dissented in that case, saying the Maryland tax was a tax, not an impost, and therefore was outside the scope of the import-export clause. Marshall rejected that argument and concluded there, to quote the government's reply brief on page 12, the court concluded that the term impost is not used in a narrow or fixed manner, but generally signifies a tax levied on articles brought into the country. So we agree with Marshall's statement. I think his statement is consistent with Michelin that in the context of these clauses, impost had a rather specific meaning. Thames of Mercy was not a departure from existing law at the time. The court's decisions under the Export Clause have been perfectly consistent. They have said from the beginning that federal taxes may not be applied to the export process itself. They've also said that if the export journey has not begun, such as in a manufacturing tax, then the issue of discrimination is important. But all the cases, starting with Turpin versus Burgess, have said that you can, the federal government cannot ta tax the export process itself. And Thames and Mercy is squarely within that line of authority. Now, concerning the questions, I guess Justice Kennedy raised it and perhaps Justice Ginsburg as to, as to whether this is sufficiently indirect that it's not a tax on export. The record doesn't reveal the sort of statistical information Justice Breyer was suggesting might be relevant because the government has conceded throughout that they are not disputing that this tax, if discriminatory, is in violation of the Constitution. They are not challenging that aspect of Thames and Mercy. They haven't challenged it throughout. To do so, 
they would have to challenge not just Tens of Mercy, they'd have to go back and challenge Chief Justice Marshall's holding in Brown versus Maryland, that attacks on occupation is attacks on an import. They'd have to challenge the Fairbank decision, which they've embraced throughout their briefs, which involved a indirect tax. They'd have to challenge Vosloff. They'd have to challenge Thames and Mercy. And the reality is that a tax on insurance is very is about as close as you can come to an ad valorem tax on the property. What, why? Just to satisfy my curiosity. There, there is a separate I, I, premium. A particular question would be, why is a tax on a premium? Right. Uh, it's a tax on a premium that paid for an insurance policy of a sort that exporters might buy and also people who are not exporters might buy. Well, and, it, and, and so why is, why is a tax that is applied to an item that both exporters and non-exporters mm-hmm. might buy, uh, in some proportion we know not, uh, uh, what? Uh, uh, why is that a tax on the good that is exported? Because when, when it is purchased for uh, a shipment of goods, as in the case here, there is a separate premium charge for every shipment. Every box, every computer that's boxed up, a separate premium is charged for that shipment from the time it leaves IBM's plant to the time it's delivered abroad. That premium varies directly with the value of that product, because if it's an expensive machine, there's a higher premium than if there's an inexpensive machine. But that's not the only variable. Uh, If you ship from Chicago to uh, Toronto, I'm I'm sure that the... uh, uh, value of the good is the predominant part of the premium. But if you ship from IBM headquarters to India by steamship, uh, I'm sure those other factors are much more significant in calculating the premium than the value of the goods. The, the extent to which the value of the good determines the premium will vary with the length of shipment. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the lo- longer shipments, longer exports are taxed more than shorter shipments. That seems to us, again, to get back to a direct tax on the export process. Separate premium for each product, it varies with the value, it varies with the distance. That, that's a tax on the export process, uh, well, slightly different than if it was a pure... You might, you might also say that that's a tax on the insurance aspect, which is, brings us back to what we're arguing about. I, I suppose that's an interesting philosophical question, whether, whether you continue to export uh, uh, until you reach India, or, or has your export stopped at least when, when you leave the territorial waters of the United States? I'm not sure where the, where the exporting stops. Um, I guess the way this tax has been administered is it goes from one from where the good takes off to where the good lands. And in terms of the court's jurisprudence under the export clause and under the import clause, I think they, they treat that entire journey as an integrated whole. The Spalding case says the export process starts when you turn over the goods to a common carrier. Uh, Marshall, you recall, in uh, Brown versus Maryland, addressed the question. Does the import and export only occur when the goods cross the border? And he said, no, it, it's, it's a longer process than that. You can't apply a prohibited import tax, even though the goods are now in the United States, and you can't apply, this was his hypothetical under the export clause, you can't apply the export clause to a later point once the goods have left. It's, it's an, the trip is an integrated journey. Is, is a tax on diesel fuel ex, uh, exempt? Uh, if that's a major portion of the uh, cost of uh, exporting the item, say, uh, bulk goods such as uh, wheat or, and corn? I think there would be a very good argument that that tax would be unconstitutional. This, this I think, is a stronger case because you're, you're taxing the shipper and, and clearly the, the, the premium does vary more That's directly. That's a very good reason for me to worry about your rationale. It's not my rationale, Your Honor. This, this is what the court held in Thames and Mercy. This has been the court's consistent theory of, of how the export clause applies. And it has not proven to be a problem. I mean, we're not suggesting some 
novel theory that's going to disrupt the republic. The export clause has been consistently interpreted for more than 200 years, and the, the republic has survived quite well. I don't think this is going to create enormous problems of administration for the courts. It hasn't so far. Mr. Atwood, the concern of Congress was with domestic insurers, and I take it from your argument that, that it couldn't be this tax as to exports, but to the extent that they are insuring or reinsuring risks in the United States, they, the premiums could be taxed. That's certainly yes. inconsistent with what Congress was trying to regulate in the interest of domestic insurers. Well, uh, uh, we understand Congress's objective. It was twofold. It was to raise revenue, and it was to, and it was to plug what was perceived as a loophole. It's got to be that Congress can't. It's just too bad for these domestic insurers. They'll fall by the wayside, and the business will go to the foreign companies. We don't think the perceived problem, uh, in effect, authorizes a tax in violation of the Constitution. That's right. There are other ways. Your, your response is that it's the fault of the Constitution. The Constitution favors exports, doesn't it? It, it does. I mean, there are a lot of tax exemptions in our laws. You can, you can make arguments for or against almost any tax exemption. The one thing that's different about, about this tax exemption is in, it's in the Constitution. And it's in the Constitution because the framers thought it was important. Why is it inevitable that this must be classed as a tax on the goods rather than a tax on the service of providing insurance? Well, it seems to me the court's decision on that aspect in terms of mercy is correct and has been conceded by the government that uh, this, is, this bears so closely to the export process that it is a tax on goods. Now, uh, Congress had other means of addressing this perceived inequality. Could it say buy American? Yes, it probably could say buy American. It could also, it could also provide tax relief for American insurers. It could also, I mean, this tax was passed many years ago. They could rethink the, their jurisdiction over foreign insurers and whether or not they could apply the income tax to foreign insurers, which, of course, would be constitutional under Peck versus Lowe. So Congress's hands aren't completely tied, but they, uh, it seems to us they, they're not entitled to, to adopt a provision contrary to the Constitution to try to, proceed, try to solve that particular problem. The court has, uh, as the government said, construed the import-export clause and the export clause consistently for many years. Going back to Chief Justice Marshall's point, I think there the consistency is not one that, that's, that's at odds here. Um, the whole point of the export-import clause cases, though, was to break that link between the two clauses. One applies to taxes, the other only applies to imports and duties. And that was the holding of the cases, that under the import-export clause, we will, we will look at whether the taxes of a customs nature, and you cannot apply that analysis to the export clause and come to the government's conclusion here. And at, at the Constitution, there, was, there were strong, compelling reasons, advanced and fought over very hard, as to whether or not exports should be exempt. It was one of the closest votes at the Constitutional Convention. And there were several reasons that coalesced behind this tax exemption. One was the concern of the southern states that were dependent upon the export economy. There were also those from New England that thought an export exemption would benefit domestic industries, would encourage the development of domestic industries. And there were others that were simply concerned about the scope of taxing authority being given to the United States, which, of course, was happening now at the first time at the convention. That came together to result in a tax exemption, uh, which is clearly written and was intended by the framers to be very broad. And, and there's no uh, contemporary evidence from that constitutional convention 
that impost was intended to be synonymous with tax. Well, we, we could make it very broad and still adopt the manner of analysis that we've used for the import-export clause. That is to say, there's, there, there's no necessary connection between uh, insisting upon discrimination uh, on the one hand and uh, um, applying it only to customs-like impositions on the other hand. It, uh, it seems to me uh, that distinction doesn't come from the text of the two clauses, does it? I, mean, well, I can apply it broadly to all sorts of taxes, but still insist, as we do under the Import-Export Clause, that it, that it discriminate. Well, I think the, the, at least if under this Court's holdings in Michelin and Washington and Stephen Doring, the concept of discrimination is in the Import-Export Clause, and it's in it because of the words duty and impost. The Court read those terms to mean taxes that tax imports and exports, qua imports and exports, that are focused on that discriminate against them as opposed to general taxes. So that's how there is a respectable, indeed perhaps strong, constitutional basis to limit the import-export clause to discriminatory taxes. That same analysis just doesn't carry forward when, when the framers use the generic term tax in the export clause. And go back to Franklin's testimony, Ben Franklin's testimony in the House of Commons, when uh, he went over as part of a delegation to protest the, uh, the, the Stamp Act. And uh, he, he reminded members of uh, the House of Commons that in the United States, tax and duty very often had different meanings, that while the colonists recognized the authority of Parliament to impose duties, now for the first time they were imposing internal taxes. And that, Franklin said, crossed the line. And, of course, Franklin was there at the convention. I must say, I, I just don't see that. It, it seems to me if, if we're, we're, we're getting the discriminatory notion, from, not from the words uh, imports or, or, or imposts or duties, but, but, but from the discrimination, uh, articles exported. Is it a tax on articles exported from any state if it's a general tax? Now, if the answer to that is uh, is no, it's not because of the use of the word tax. It's because of the phrase laid on articles exported. That that's where you get the discriminatory uh, content, not not from the, the word tax versus uh, impost. That was not the analysis the court applied in Michelin and Washington Stevedore, and they did not uh, focus on the the lay on language that's in the import export clause as well. They said that clause is narrower and different because, and this is cited on page 31 of our brief, it's from 423 U.S. at 287, imposter duties mean essentially taxes on the commercial privilege of bringing goods into a country. And then they applied the same analysis to exports uh, in, the, in Washington's Stevedoring. That's the textual basis the court relied upon, and uh, they spent a good deal of time analyzing Marshall's opinion in Brown versus Maryland to, to reach that specific narrower definition of imposts. And that's why one clause, and, and, and again, the background as well, if you look back at the Constitutional Convention, clearly the import-export clause was intended to prevent uh, discrimination. The export clause was intended to provide a broad tax immunity. The, the framers simply did not think it proper that the federal government burdened the export process. That's what this tax does. There's no further questions, Mr. Chief Justice. That concludes. Very well, Mr. Atwood. Uh, Mr. Muneer. 
You have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I would like to point out first that uh, what Respondent is arguing for here is something that is truly peculiar. In this one area under the Constitution, the states would have broader authority than the federal government on a matter respecting foreign commerce. That is the result of their interpretation, their differing interpretations of the Export Clause and the Import-Export Clause. I think that strikes one as surprising. Well, but that's certainly the result of the cases decided under the Export Clause. It's true in Fairbank, is it not? Certainly in Mercy. No, I think if we look at the actual cases, now Fairbanks was the only, the first case in which this court struck down uh, a federal tax on an Export Clause theory. And that was a discriminatory tax. And that tax would have been viewed as uh, violative of the Import-Export Clause as well at that time. What we're arguing is the same prohibition basically applies uh, with respect to exports, uh, whether the taxes are federal or state taxes. But certainly it was true in Thames and Mercy. Uh, the tax there, I think that under the Import-Export Clause, until this Court's reasoning, uh, new reasoning in Michelin Tires and Washington Stevedores, a state tax on insurance related to exports would have also been struck down. So in other words, the tax... The, the, the extent of the prohibition would have been the same under either clause. Now that the prohibition has, this court has recognized that the import-export clause invo involves a narrower prohibition, it's time to reconsider whether the export clause ought to be read as a broader prohibition itself. Respondent, even if that weren't so, I take it that the tax in Washington stevedoring was a tax that wasn't related directly to the value of the goods. It was on, uh, it was on services, and moreover, the tax in Michelin I guess, was a tax on goods that weren't in transit. Yes, that's And so right. I'm not certain that those cases really are uh, contrary uh, to Thames and Mercy. If you look at Thames and Mercy as a case where the incidence of the tax fell directly on the export. I think that they are, though, if you look at the cases in com combination. To be sure, the goods in Michelin involved goods not in transit, but the, the tax in Washington stevedores did. And the tax, yes, in the tax in Washington stevedores was on the service and thus wasn't directly related to the value of the good. And it's therefore a tax on the service, not on the good. And here the big if clause that I said before means we have to assume it's a tax on the good. And, and I believe it's, excuse me, Your Honor, uh, I, I would say I think it's problematic to describe the tax on insurance as a tax on the good. I think that's a, a problem, as I said, in Thames and Mercy. Yeah, I agree, but we're foreclosed on that because you conceded it, according to your opponents. Uh, I don't believe you're foreclosed from, by our concession, from, from addressing that issue as you see fit. But I think there's another problem I'd like to turn to, too, and that is this whole notion of trying to determine uh, when a tax is, is laid upon the export process. This has been a problem that bedeviled the court for many years under the Import-Export Clause. And you look at the line of cases that came through here, and there is no consistency here. Spalding said that the tax applied when the product was handed to a common carrier. But Joy Petroleum said that if the product stops along the way and is put in storage, then it is, is subject to a local tax. Well, the, Thames and Mercy was decided in 1915, and I don't see any great trouble having resulted between then and now in applying the uh, uh, export clause. Well, there have been very few cases since Spalding, simply because of the, the effect of the export clause is so draconian. And it is this case that we have chosen to, to ask the court to review its thinking in this area and to bring it in line with the import-export clause. Once again, Mr. Muneer, uh, as, as I think we established earlier, you, you will enable us to avoid that question usually at most because we can decide the question simply on the basis that the tax is not discriminatory. But where it is discriminatory, 
we're going to have to address this same question anyway. You, you are not eliminating that difficulty from our jurisprudence. But that's not an unusual problem that the taxpayer will bear the burden of showing that a tax that appears to be fair on its face is discriminatory in a particular context. No, and but once you decide it's discriminatory, you are then going to have to decide whether it is laid upon the process of export. So that, you know, that, that difficulty that you're now addressing, it isn't eliminated from our jurisprudence entirely. All you can say is you won't have to face it as often as you now do. That's right, but the same thing was true with regard to the import-export clause. For instance, there's still the question of what happens if a state imposes a property tax on property that is in transit through the state without stopping, on the, the property that's being transported on rail cars as it moves through the state. Can they tax that? That question is still one of the questions that's been left open in Mission Entire. And likewise, there should be some issues that will be left open here. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Muneer. The, case the Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.